the victims in Kosovo, the survivors in Kosovo, after 20 plus years of disappointment, they had quite lost confidence. But in comes Drita Haidari. And she says to them, you know, you told your story to the UN, you told your story to the EU, and your cases haven't been brought forward. And I'm sorry about that, but here I am. And if you're willing to tell me your story again. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, I'm Janet. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and you're listening to Asymmetrical Haircuts. Today, we tried to get our heads around a different aspect of making international criminal justice happen. Yeah, we're looking at how all this experience, which has built up over decades in some of the international tribunals, is being kind of transferred back into national proceedings. And we're talking here not about capacity building, but rather about working with, embedding, partnering, mentoring uh, prosecutors and legal professionals. And to help us to understand what's going on on this uh, local level and why it's happening, how it works, what the benefits and the drawbacks are to these kind of arrangements, we have some great guests. First up, there's a duo we will introduce together. They are Maxine Marcus and Kathleen Roberts, and together they are Partners in Justice. Hi. Hello. 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 Good to be here. They managed that really uh, beautifully in unison. Thank you very much. (laughs) Now, these two women have CVs and experience a mile long, but the salient bits that I've picked out are that Maxine Marcus is both a prosecutor and an investigator with more than 20 years field-based and courtroom-based experience. She was prosecuting attorney, for example, at the former Yugoslav tribunal on four cases, including the Mladic trial. And she's got lots of experience related to documenting the investigation of sexual violence in conflict. And Kathleen Roberts, or Kathy as we'll call her for the podcast, has represented victims and survivors for more than 15 years. She has led teams at the Center for Justice and Accountability on really famous cases in the US and has led or supervised investigation of grave crimes cases from 12 countries spanning five continents. Wow, we've got a lot of experience in the room here. Now, in addition, we also have Drita Haidari, and uh, she's joining us from her office in Kosovo. So I think we might have a little bit of uh, office noise in the background. Hi, Drita. Hi. Drita is currently the special prosecutor in the Special Prosecution Office of the Republic of Kosovo. And we invited her because she's actually worked together with Max and Kathy, and we wanted to hear what it's like, what the results are that can be obtained from this kind of collaboration. So let's start by asking Max and Kathy, what makes this so different from kind of coming in and telling local prosecutors what to do? Yes, well, that's exactly, in fact, your introduction really was was perfect because after all the experience that we were fortunate to have uh, internationally, we wanted to share that with our peers at the national level. And um, so we, we, the difference is that we are no longer litigating our own cases. Um, we are trying to multiply the impact in terms of access to justice and help our colleagues bring justice at home so that the justice is tangible and local and, and effective 
directly where where the victims and survivors are. What I still don't get though exactly is Kathy, you know, let's turn to you. What is it that makes this model so different um, from previous ways of doing things? I almost don't know where to begin <laughs> with that question. Um, one of the ways in which it is very different is that um, we are trying to really shift the power into the hands of our local colleagues. Um, I would say, you know, I, we often say Max and I came to this work from, you know, different directions on different paths to arrive at the same place <laughs> where, you know, we have both come from models that are, uh, by the way, very, very important um, institutions and, um, and sort of politically and everything else, very important, but basically models of remote control justice. That is where it's coming from an international body or it's coming from a foreign court. And those are, those are institutions that are going to be very limited in in what they're able to do um so um so that's one side of it right which is the sort of the international and foreign court side of international criminal justice and the other side is the kind of um i guess you'd call it rule of law work that is pretty common in a lot of local jurisdictions but which isn't necessarily as connected with international justice goals it tends to be more um more oriented around ordinary justice and moving forward instead of looking back. And so we're in that little, we've, we've discovered this little gap in between where we try to help locals be able to do what um, internationals are doing so that the international community is not sort of imposing itself in that, in that way or doesn't need to. People are able to do that for themselves, which should result in more justice for more people. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, is this kind of holistic or is it like trying to change how and support how local prosecutors work? Or is it how to change what the results are for victims? Because I know that's that's very much your background, uh, Kathy, is really thinking on behalf of victims. And I'm sure Max as well. But I, I'm trying to understand, is it that level or that level or is it every level? So that the sort of guiding vision is that we're we're hoping to sort of push the world in a direction where victims and survivors of grave crimes have access to tangible effective justice wherever they live so not just in foreign countries and international courts um you know you mentioned that a number of my cases have been kind of high profile and you know it's it's true like when you get to court in a big international case then it's it can be it can draw a lot of attention and if you're trying to do impact litigation it's you're, you want to generate that attention because you can only get justice for a handful of people. Right. And, and when I was, you know, uh, the first time I went to Somaliland, which was 2011, um, I was I kept meeting victims and witnesses who all sort of raised the same question that, you know, why does the international community not care what happened to us? Right. What happened in Somaliland was maybe five years before the genocide in Rwanda and the international community's reaction was very different, right? Um, <laughs> from an international tribunal to just completely not even covering it in the news, right? A very, very big difference. And there's no good answer to that, right? Who's supposed to bring justice to the rest of the victims? Who's supposed to bring justice to all of these people who are overlooked in the international systems that exist? And where there are prosecutors 
police investigators, civil society organizations, victim representatives, where there are professionals who want to do that in their own communities, who have integrity, who have the capability, where there's a justice system that works, then we are ready to respond to that call, right? When they want help, not because they want somebody else to do it for them, but because they want to do it themselves and they just need that little bit of knowledge that they don't have access to, then we can come and help supply that on a, a really temporary basis because we, we, I mean, we work with these incredibly accomplished people like Drita Haidari, who, you know, certainly Drita doesn't require assistance in learning how to be a prosecutor. She's phenomenally talented and experienced, right? Um, but maybe she hasn't tried some crimes against humanity cases, or when we first met her, she hadn't tried some crimes against humanity cases, and those are, those are structured a little bit differently, right? We all need our colleagues in order to be able to move our work forward, particularly in new areas that we haven't worked in before. So that's, that's kind of the role that we play, which I think is a little bit different than how others conceive it. I see Max would like to break in here and I'm just going on and on. So sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, you, you said it beautifully. And that's exactly the, the idea, Janet, is that we, we come in with respect. We don't come in with any idea of what should be. Uh, we, we're approaching this uh, with an offer of support to our colleagues. So it's on their request specifically what they, the kind of help that they need to deal with their cases involving war crimes, crimes against humanity, and in some instances, genocide. And, and so we sit, we sat, for example, with Drita and discussed with her what the challenges were. And then we share our experience and we, what we end up doing in terms of mentoring is we work on cases with them. It's a closed door process. It's not a public advocacy thing. We sign confidentiality and and when we gain their trust, which we work very hard to um, to earn and and keep, we we work together in cases with them and and answer those technical questions that we know the answers to from our practice. And Drita and our other other colleagues at the national level may not because their expertise is not yet in international criminal uh, prosecutions or investigations. And then what happens is that they gain the skill and then when, when we're done, then they continue. So they are the ones who are bringing the cases. They are the ones bringing justice. And all we're doing is, is giving a little support where they need it and where they ask for it. So Trita, that brings me to you because uh, as uh, Max and Kathy mentioned, you have phenomenal experience. You started out as a judge under the Yugoslav system. You've worked with ULEX, you've worked with all kinds of accountability and, and justice projects, and now you're a prosecutor. Um, so what does this bring that all the other, your, your years of experience, and I'm sure lots and lots of trainings by all kinds of European uh, bodies and legal bodies, because I know how Kosovo works and how everybody wants to help. So what did kind of Kathy and Max add that you really needed and didn't have before? Initially, I want to mention that uh, my office Special Prosecution Office of uh, Republic of Kosovo received the case war crimes cases uh, on the end of uh, 2018. And uh, as uh, Maxine and Kathy know, uh, we inherited large number of cases, uh, 19, 900 cases 
and uh, approximately uh, 2,000 missing persons cases with only two prosecutors. And uh, you can imagine the situation in which we were. In that uh, situation came Maxine and Kathy, and uh, we discussed a lot about um, managing of these cases. You know, we have to establish the priority of cases because we couldn't work uh, in each case. So we discuss a lot about managing of the cases and uh, proceeding the cases. Uh, before uh, before uh, I work in uh, war crime cases, I used to work in corruption cases. So I didn't have some uh, previous experience in these kind of cases. And uh, having in the mind that Eulex uh, didn't uh, hand it over to us some policy regarding the uh, war crimes cases, I can say that we were in the beginning, we started from zero with such a large number of the cases. After we uh, decided how to manage with these cases, we, with Katie and uh, Maxine, we started to, to work case by case. In the time when uh, they came, uh, come in my office, I was uh, in the investigation proceeding, proceeding um, in the, uh, one very um, difficult case. It was based on the command responsibility. And I really didn't have any experience in that matter. And uh, Maxine and uh, Kathy showed me the, some examples from the ICTYs and some uh, practical cases in, in this matter. So finally, I drafted my indictment and uh, sent to court. Also, it was very useful our uh, cooperation in the matter of the victims of sexual violence during the war. Let me just explain to our listeners who are not as well versed in Kosovo as we are all speaking here. When Tuta is talking about inheriting cases, um, uh, after uh, Kosovo gained independence, there was the European Rule of Law Mission who had set up a kind of parallel system of courts to try uh, big uh, crimes like war crimes and corruption cases, and those were handed over to local prosecutors. So when Drita is talking about inheriting war crimes cases, I'm assuming these are uh, ULEX cases or dossiers that haven't been handled and uh, other evidence that was given possibly also by ICTY. I'm not entirely sure for that. I'm sure that's also very confidential, but mostly ULEX left a lot of cases for local prosecutors to tackle now. I'd like to know, um, you've given this picture, Drita, of uh, that you needed to work out how to organise yourselves, how to make priorities, how to handle command responsibility. We're going to move on later to the um, sexual and gender-based crimes, which I'm really interested to, to get some more about. But, I mean, I'm wondering, when you get the help from people like Max and Kathy, and you have these conversations with them, does it actually help you also within the system in Kosovo for you to uh, lobby for extra resources for you to say politically 
um, you know, these are really important cases? Or is their help really just focused on that kind of technical level on trying to help you to 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 understand how to to put a case together? Does their input also help you sort of make more of the cases in some way? Sure, sure that uh, this help was uh, uh, and uh, in uh, uh, applying of uh, international law, you know that in war crimes cases, we are not applying only domestic law. We have to take care and to apply uh, international law. So uh, uh, Maxine Nikati helped us to to um, to show us and to provide us with examples from the, uh, uh, especially from ICTYs and uh, another an, another uh, uh, court uh, uh, judgments and uh, uh, policies regarding the uh, war, war uh, crimes cases. So uh, this uh, assistance was not uh, uh, only for um, particular cases. Uh, it's uh, something what we are applying for uh, our cases when Maxine and Katie left, so. <laughs> Maybe I could add on to that a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, we, we try to support in, what, in whatever way we can. So, yes, the core of our work and the heart of our work is inside the cases on the technical preparation of cases. When we're in Kosovo, we've worked with Drita. We've also worked both separately and jointly with the Kosovo War Crimes Police Unit on the same strategies. Yeah, and also with uh, with some of the victim lawyers, victim representatives, and we also work to bring those groups together so that they can build alliances and continue. In the case of Kosovo, we have also met with the Minister of Justice, with Drita, right? And we've met with the Chief Prosecutor, we've met a, uh, a couple of times, and with the Kosovo Judicial Council. So, uh, but all of that is based on specific requests from our peers, so from Drita and from the War Crimes Police Unit, etc. If they need certain help on something, we do try to have uh, other engagements that can also support them in their work in, institutionally. When you're talking about that, you're being very careful to say that, you know, local uh, peers are asking you and, you know, there's a lot of this mentoring and advice going kind of on in the international justice world, often also through countries who are either going through big political changes or just had a crisis or a post-war period. Some people kind of critique this rule of law work as kind of trying to export uh, Western values or uh, impose a set of rules from the outside. How do you try to counter that and make sure that that's not how you're being perceived or that's not what you're doing? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. A lot of people are doing work under the name of mentoring, but I don't know how, I can't really speak to what other people are doing. I think the idea of importing um, Western values or, you know, human rights, you know, we do operate in a human rights framework. I don't think human rights are particularly Western or specifically Western or specifically global North. Um, but, you know, of course you can't deny that there's a kind of, there's an economic and political uh, military imbalance in the world. Right. And so that, that is something you have to interrogate. Um, we work very hard to be sure that our work is 
countering the kind of gravity of um, the colonial patterns. Um, but of course, we're also very open to that critique in a way. If that's if that's if what we're doing is that, then we would like to not do that, please. And I think that's part of why we we tend to emphasize that we're following local leadership. We're not walking into countries and saying, take us to your war crimes unit. We'll tell you how it needs to be done. That's We're not really interested in that. There's so many people who want the kind of support that we can give that we don't we don't need to um, go out in search of, you know, sort of new hills to conquer or something like this. That kind of model is not the model that we follow. We don't take credit for our colleagues' work. We don't take over. <laughs> so... So that's, that's I, you know, we do our best. Um, you also mentioned on the website this um, idea of sustainability. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm conscious myself, you know, the tap gets turned on and the tap gets turned off by donors. You know, sometimes it's this country, which is in the, you know, in everybody's uh, eyesight, you know, that, and that has happened with Kosovo. And sometimes it's some other country that's the one that everybody has to go and work in. How do you make sustainability work, Kathy? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure I'm sure Max will want to want to jump in on this. But actually, one of the reasons why we created the nonprofit organization is because we think that model is more sustainable for exactly that reason. Um, going in as a consultant, it's very dependent on the donors or other projects other people have have started, and it's very difficult to make the kind of long term commitments that we'd like to make. Um, so that what you know, our preference would be: we come when we're requested, and we leave when we're no longer requested, no longer needed. Um, but I think Max actually has quite a lot to say on sustainability, and I will um, pass it back to her. What we found, Janet, is that. Uh, that our peers, when they find out what kind of help we can give, they really want it and, and need it. And they haven't been offered this kind of case-based technical partnership. Okay, we partner with them. And, and, and if, you, if you talk about sustainability, you will see in some of Drita explaining what she has done. Okay, you see the victims in Kosovo, the survivors in Kosovo, felt very disappointed with UNMIC, that the UN mission, right? And they felt very disappointed with ULEX thereafter. And after 20 plus years of disappointment, they had quite lost confidence. But in comes Drita Haidari and brings back that confidence. And she says to them, you know, you're right. Uh, your cases weren't heard. You told your story to the UN, you told your story to the EU, and your cases haven't been brought forward. And I'm sorry about that, but here I am. And if you're willing to tell me your story again, I'm gonna bring your case. And Drita has been successful. I think she has more than 50 cases of sexual violence uh, victims relating to conflict. And, and, um, and there's one amazing successful case that she, I hope she will talk about as well. And what that does is, so Drita now can do it, and she can teach her colleagues to do it, and it's now embedded in their system. So, you know, I'm sure Drita will say she wants more help from us, which of course we'd be honored to give, but the, the point is that it's already transferred and she can already sustain that. And when some victims participate, others then watch and get courage to participate, and they have that experience of empowerment that Drita brings, and that is sustainable, that will continue, and Drita can pass it on in her own community. So that's sort of the, the, the way in which we're doing it. So Drita, picking that up, um, 
we talked a lot about the international involvement with Kosovo, the fact that it has a long-standing judicial system also from Yugoslav days, but there were very specific issues when you took over this office of the prosecutor, and especially also with prosecuting sexual and gender-based crimes. Can you explain a bit kind of what was the situation when you came to that position in prosecuting these crimes and what did you have to do where did you need help in prosecuting those specific crimes? As I mentioned, uh, when I received, and my colleague, when we received the war crimes cases, we really didn't have any uh, any previous um, experience in that cases. And uh, uh, meeting with uh, persons who have experience was very uh, useful for us. Uh, we had a long, long discussion with Maxine and Kathy. Uh, we were uh, interested for everything. I have to, to repeat again that we didn't inherit uh, one uh, single case from uh, international, uh, previous international missions, Sonmik and Eulex, which we could uh, use as a model for our work. Uh, I have to mention again that we really were, we were at the beginning and that we started from zero. So meeting with, uh, with Kathy and uh, Maxine was useful in order to share uh, their experience with us and their knowledge. I started to use this experience uh, in my cases and uh, uh, two months ago, I, I had success in uh, one uh, sexual violence case uh, before the Kosovo court. I told you that I have an official trip exactly about uh, sexual violence. I have been in Sweden in order to interview the uh, sexual violence victim. He, because it's men, uh, the victim. Uh, he uh, recognized the property uh, based on the photo album. So uh, after that, we will continue with our procedure. I also have to tell you that a few months ago came into the, the force the, the law uh, which uh, allowed us to proceed the cases, uh, war crimes cases in trial of abstentia. Because our, our uh, uh, biggest problem was that defendants were uh, out of Kosovo. Most of them are in Serbia. So having in mind that we don't have any uh, legal cooperation with Serbia, we, will, we were blocked in our cases. So we, after gathering of all uh, necessary investigations, uh, evidence, we had to suspend our cases. But this new law allows us to continue and to proceed in absence of the defendants. Is it that it attitudes changed that this became something that people were actually talking about so that you could now prosecute it? Or is it the fact that you prosecuted or started to look at these cases that made the conversation possible? I started to prosecute these cases and uh, uh, through NGOs who deal with these cases, I sent the message to, to the victims. I um, met victims a few times. I explained to them uh, our procedure, what I can do and what I cannot do. 
uh, I called these victims to report the cases. I couldn't promise that every case will be success, but uh, I explained to them that uh, that war crimes and uh, what happened to them is crime and that they have to report that. So when I start to work, I inherited probably two or three cases, sex, sexual violence cases. Now I have 50. Kathy, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and, and say, you know, in terms of sexual violence in Kosovo, people have been talking about it for a very long time. Um, we've met with victims who were complaining when it, the K4 forces were on the ground, you know, right at the time of the conflict and going forward. And there are organizations that have been advocating for justice for quite a long time. But as as was mentioned earlier, they they really had lost trust. They'd lost faith. They were like, no one comes back to me on my case. I don't know what's happening with my case. And, you know, that there was a kind of there was a kind of failure, I would say, in the international and multinational systems that were attempting to address justice, whether it was because they didn't prioritize these cases or they didn't empower the victims to participate more, or maybe there were other issues. But when Drita steps into the room, she brings a certain force and passion and credibility, partly because she's she's an incredible person, mainly because of that, but also because she is Kosovar. And because her the people were telling us, you know, victims were telling us and civil society representatives were telling us, well, of course, we're going to trust our prosecutors. Those are our people. But, you know, it had to happen. It had to happen. Somebody like Drita had to take the risk to step forward and actually talk with them and admit that they can't do everything, which is of course true, but like somehow that's, that is, that is a step that needs to, to happen. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted to say Drita did a marvelous job <laughs> of making that happen. And, um, you know, you're hearing her in her second language, but uh, I gotta tell you, <laughs> she is a force. Or third. Or third, or third yeah. language even, Drita, right? We hope Drita will help us uh, to go other places and work with other prosecutors later, after, after she's uh, done her job to her satisfaction in Kosovo. Well, I'm wondering if I can pick up with you, Maxine. Uh, Kathy said there are other issues about... Um, maybe uh, dealing with sexual and gender-based crimes. Uh, understand, you know, in uh, Kosovo, maybe what was needed, all kudos to, to Drita for being the person who everybody can identify with and saying she will do it. What else gets in the way uh, that you are having to look at in your your range of mentoring and working with different prosecutors what gets in the way of these specific uh, prosecuting these specific crimes i think it depends a little bit on the context okay i have to say i have to, i have to say that because for kosovo i believe what got in the way was that the international structures that were acting as the justice system um didn't didn't prioritize these cases or the cases didn't move forward, let's say. Okay. And, and, um, they got stuck, which is why they ended up, um, after so many years, um, being handed over to Drita, but with a case file that was, that she couldn't do anything with. Um, so the reason for that, I can't speak to, cause I wasn't in those institutions. Um, 
And but I think generally wherever we go, there is uh, there there is a challenge with these cases, right? And that's what we try to help our our peers to overcome, right? Because they are cold cases, yeah. So the pro the ordinary prosecutor in a national system knows how to prosecute a murder because there was a crime scene and there were you know there, and we are we are um, investigating and prosecuting cases that that have a none or or very little if any forensic evidence for the ordinary national prosecutor that sounds impossible until but for us as international in in, in the international criminal practice that's a matter of course you know at the special court for sierra leone we didn't have any forensic evidence at all <laughs> you know um and and all of those cases were brought based on witness testimony now, so to overcome that, it's not just the prosecutors that have to overcome that uh, that feeling of insecurity at relying only on witness testimony. It's also the victim representatives, the survivors themselves, because it's a, quite a hefty responsibility, right, to carry that, um, and and the investigators. And then also the prosecutor has to be confident enough to take on the judges who are going to say, what is this? What kind of evidence is this? So there are a lot of hurdles to it. We bring some technical support, but they are the ones who fight the battle, who fight the system. And many of our colleagues like Jurita are working in a system that may or may not ultimately be supportive of what they're doing. And yet we find that they want to do it because they are committed to bringing this justice. And we're so honored to be able to help in whatever way we can. May I add something? Uh, initially, we were two prosecutors in war crimes cases. Now are, we are four. Uh, only I am uh, trained for war crimes cases. Another prosecutor is not. We are new. That's an important thing to add. I'm sure I see Kathy and Max already nodding their heads, probably dying to jump in and help your new colleagues also with their cases. I agree, Stephanie. I hope that uh, Max and Kathy get the opportunity to work uh, work with uh, Drita's new new colleagues. Um, we always end the podcast by asking some specific questions. Um, I wanted to change this just a little bit this time and ask all three of you one specific question, and then we'll, we may get the chance to ask our normal questions. First one uh, to all of you is, what is the future from your perspective of what we call international criminal justice, i.e. justice for these big, very horrible crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. What's going to happen in, in the future? Start off with you, Drita. What's the future? You know, we lost uh, a lot of time. We are dealing with these cases uh, 20 years uh, after the war, the crime was committed. Uh, you know very well that it's very hard to investigate the crime who happened, let's say, yesterday. Even the cases which happened uh, tw 21 years ago. So uh, we have to work very fast. You mentioned the word, uh, the future. This is uh, something what makes me very concerned about the future of these cases. So we have to work very fast in these cases because uh, many, many uh, witnesses already died. Some of them became very old and their memories is uh, very, they are not uh, confident at all. Uh, many 
uh, evidence are are very hard to to come to this evidence. Also, we need some uh, cooperation with with the MICT uh, ICT, ICTY uh, and evidence which are in this uh, uh, institution. So uh, we have to do a lot and to work very fast. And having in mind that now we have approximately 1,000 cases. Taking it a bit more broadly, Max, what do you think is the future for uh, how we prosecute these uh, terrible crimes? I think that the future for justice for atrocity crimes has to be at home. The future of, of access to justice has to be in the countries where the victims are so that they can get direct tangible justice. You know, the whole the whole project of international criminal justice systems was intended to be a, a last resort, right? And sometimes I feel that we might have forgotten that a little bit, right? It was meant to be only if the country itself is not willing or able to bring these cases at home. And of course there are places where they're not willing, but there are so many places where they are willing and the, the justice that happens in your own community is something that has a much more transformative impact. Even if Drita, for example, Drita, if you can't bring a thousand cases, right? But if you bring 100 and you bring it in an open, inclusive way where people feel, they feel that justice is being brought, there is a sense of a commitment and acknowledgement and memorialization of the past and hearing and recognition. And, and that is sometimes what we have to settle for because there are so many cases in all of the places post-conflict. There's so many cases, even the national system wouldn't be able to get through all of them probably, right? But the chances of it transforming and people feeling a sense of justice through these processes can only really happen at home. Uh, and so that I think is where the future is. And I hope we will find many other other practitioners also going out and rather than bringing these cases, looking to bring them at the international level, to bring them in national systems and help our colleagues uh, to do that. I imagine, Cathy, uh, that you agree with that. Um, is there something you want to add? Yeah, I mean, Max and I obviously share a vision of <laughs> where we want to see things see things move. You know, what I hope we see is kind of a, a democratization of international justice where more victims more um, more people with more backgrounds have access to the levers of justice in order to serve more serve more people more broadly. You know the the priorities that have been set by the most powerful nations are on these this a range of crimes that we're all familiar with. But as you see people take it more and more into their own hands, then you will see different priorities and different crimes even may emerge. And I I think that that kind of less controlled, more free system is going to be a really interesting thing to watch. I mean, it's, I, I wish that we, there was, we were only talking about past crimes. Obviously, there's a lot of conflicts going on. Obviously, every system, every domestic system is not capable of, of trying international justice crimes right now. And you see these kind of um, international mechanisms popping up and the ICC will continue to play a role, I think. Um, universal jurisdiction will continue to play a role. But what I hope is that we just see more and more and more paths to justice and more and more voices and sort of not all centrally located in 
you know, sort of the Hague in London as Max and I are. <laughs> um, so I, I hope that we see a broader dialogue emerging and more justice for more people. That's my hope. And of course, my fear is that we won't see that. Our, our final uh, asymmetrical haircuts question is a bit off the off this track. Uh, it's what are you reading, listening to, watching when you are not knee deep in war crimes prosecutions? So we'll take that in the reverse order and start with Kathy and then Max and then Drita. Well, obviously, I'm listening to this podcast all, as much as I can. Uh, you guys are are just amazing, and it's it's wonderful for keeping keeping up to date on things. Um, I I mentioned that I live in London. I've only moved here recently, so I'm I'm currently reading a book called Watching the English, which is um, <laughs> you know it, <laughs> Kate Fox. Um, it's an anthropology of English culture, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so I'm I'm having a lot of fun with that. And otherwise, you know, it's probably you know the usual kind of Netflix things that everybody else is is watching. Um, we, I, I just was introduced to The Line of Duty, which is a very popular show here in the UK, and that's fascinating. Um, but uh, yeah, there we are. So me, I am really happy that my little, my youngest child has not yet read the Harry Potter books, so we are starting over from scratch, reading Harry Potter. We're on the first book, we can barely put it down. It doesn't matter how much you know the story or you know what's going to happen. It's just so much fun. And I'm so lucky to get to go through that yet again um, with my youngest. And Drita, I do hope you will share what it is that you do to relax, perhaps not watching something, but I know you have a special, a special activity that you like to do outside of the city. You're a hiker. Yeah, I'm still going on hiking, still. So where do you hike in Kosovo? Everywhere, with my passion, with passion. It's very important for uh, for uh, physical and uh, mental health to, to walk. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, working in these cases, uh, I have to admit that I'm sometimes very, very uh, upset and... Um, and uh, it's very hard to to listen all these hard stories. So, this yeah. is uh, exactly what I told uh, to victim in Sweden. I told him, I know that during the interview you will have uh, uh, hard and difficult moments, but believe it's hard uh, for me uh, as well. So sometimes it's very hard to listen such uh, such terrible stories. Thank you so much, all three of you, for joining today and for telling us a little bit about the kinds of work you're doing and giving us your predictions. And we'll, um, we'll be watching Drita to see what happens in Kosovo and hope to report again on specifically some of the cases that you're involved in. And uh, Max and Cathy, I know that we can't necessarily follow you because you have to uh retain a degree of uh, separation between what you can say publicly and how you work privately. But um, do come back and tell us more if there's some more interesting developments from a particular country that, uh, that you're involved in. So thank you all very much. Thank you. We will do so. Yeah, thank you very us. much for having us. What a pleasure. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, 
an independent site covering justice efforts for mass violence. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub in The Hague. We hope to return there soon. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>